0: Praise and thanksgiving be unto you, O God, our Father, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ and set Him at your right hand in the kingdom of glory. Praise and thanksgiving be unto you, O Lord Jesus Christ, for you are the Lamb of God who has redeemed us by your blood. You are the heavenly priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. You are the eternal King who comes again to make all things new. Praise and thanksgiving be unto You, O Holy Spirit, who has poured out the love of God into our hearts, who quickens us together with Christ and makes us to sit with Him in heavenly places and to taste the good Word of God and the powers of the age to come. Blessing and glory, wisdom and thanksgiving, honor and power and might be unto You, our God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.
1: Our lesson of the day is Psalm 13. Listen carefully again to God's Word. This is for the director, a psalm by David. How long, Yahweh? Will you forget me continually? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I make plans in my soul with sorrow in my heart all day? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look, answer me, Yahweh my God. Brighten my eyes lest I sleep in death. Lest my enemies say I have overcome him. Lest my adversaries rejoice because I am shaken. But as for me, in your covenantal love I have trusted. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to Yahweh for He has dealt bountifully with me. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word preserved for us by Your Spirit. And we thank You for the promise that Your Spirit attends the reading and the preaching of Your Word to make it effectual for salvation. We thank You that You are here with us now to speak Your Word to us and to comfort us by Your Word, to convict us and cleanse us by your word to consecrate us as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Have you ever wondered why the Psalter, the book of Psalms, the church's divinely inspired hymnal is filled with so much weeping and mourning. So many psalms of lament. I mean, do we really need all these psalms? They all kind of sound the same after a while. If you read, especially if you've been tracking along through this first Uh, book of the Psalter, they all start to sound alike. David, God's king, is in trouble again, apparently. And he seems to stay in trouble. He seems to stay in distress. Have you ever wondered why there are so many psalms of lament? Have you ever wondered why David, the Lord's anointed king, the man after God's own heart of all people, Was always in trouble. Wouldn't you think that somebody in his position, somebody like him, would catch a break every now and then? It's no accident that King David's life was filled with so much suffering, so much waiting. And that as a result, in the midst of those seasons of suffering, in the midst of those times of waiting, that he filled the psalter with so many songs of lament. This is not by accident. Because David is not the only royal figure who who endured great affliction. In fact, I challenge you to find me a royal figure in Scripture whose life we know something about that did not endure great affliction and trial and seasons of waiting. Think of a man like Joseph. Joseph had this vision from God that he would be exalted, that he would rule over his family and over over the nations. And he endured persecution. He endured false imprisonment. He endured years and years of waiting before God ever finally fulfilled His promise to exalt Joseph. A man named Job, we heard part of his Uh, story uh, earlier, Job was a a royal figure. He was called the greatest of the sons of the East. He's he's described in terms like Adam. He's described like a Solomon-type figure. And as this royal figure, he underwent unimaginable suffering and loss. The pattern that we see throughout Scripture in the lives of men like Joseph Job, David, countless others, and ultimately in Jesus Himself, the pattern that we see teaches us that kings are trained in God's school of suffering. Long seasons of waiting are God's way of preparing His people for glory. God disciplines His children not because He's bored, not because he's just playing mind games with us. God sends us trials and afflictions to mature us, to teach us wisdom, in short, to glorify us. The Apostle Paul put it bluntly in Second Timothy chapter three. "All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There it is. No false pretenses, right? But suffering doesn't automatically produce sanctification. I think this is a mistake that we might be tempted to make. We read about all these um, men in Scripture who endured great suffering, who endured long seasons of waiting, and we look at how they were sanctified, many of them, and matured through that process. And we might be tempted to assume that sanctification is the automatic result of suffering. But it's not. Suffering and waiting on God are just as likely to make us bitter and angry as they are to make us humble and wise. And that is why Scripture is filled with instruction for how to respond to suffering faithfully. How to wait righteously. And so the Bible contains not just one Psalm of Lament that sort of, you know, covers it all, but the Psalter is filled with dozens of Psalms of Lament because we too need to learn how to wait. We too need to learn how to wrestle with God in faith. We too need to learn how to suffer so that we might share in God's glory. Psalm 13, like many other Lament Psalms is explicitly written for the director. This psalm was not just David's own private exercise of some sort of you know therapeutic meditation. This psalm and like and many others like it were written explicitly for congregational singing. These psalms are here for the maturation and edification of of all of God's people. Whether we think we need this psalm today or not, we need it. And brothers and sisters around us need us to be singing psalms like this, to be praying psalms like this for those who are threatened by enemies, who are at the brink of major catastrophe. This short psalm, six verses has three very neatly divided, uh, three neatly divided sections. Two verses apiece. And the whole psalm moves us from despair to doxology. We begin in the first two verses with lamentation. These are the questions of anxiety. And then in the middle section, verses 3 and 4, we move from lamentation to supplication. This is the cry of prayer. And then in the last section, verses 5 and 6, we have a declaration. A declaration of trust. The questions of anxiety give way to the cry of prayer which culminates in the song of faith. David opens this song of lament with a blistering litany of complaints against God. How long, Yahweh? Will you forget me continually? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I make plans in my soul with sorrow in my heart all day? How long will my my enemy triumph over me? In biblical terminology, the question how long is not like the question are we there yet? This is not the demand of childish impatience. This is the cry of the afflicted. The cry of the oppressed longing for redemption. How long is a cry for justice? A cry for God to act. A cry of humble faith. In no less than 13 psalms, the refrain, how long is the question of faithful lamentation. You could say that how long is the the motto of the divine school of suffering. As I've pointed out in previous sermons where we've run into this, uh, this phrase, there are two significant questions that show up time and again throughout the Psalter. Those two questions are, how long, like you see here, and the question, why? And of those two questions, how long is the more Uh, is the question that appears more frequently. In our day and age, we often are tempted to ask the question, why? We want to know why things happen. We want God to explain Himself. Why is a question we do see. It's a legitimate question to ask. But the more predominant question is how long? There's a fine line between asking why in faith and asking why, as in demanding to know God's will. Demanding that God justify Himself. Putting God in the dock. Putting Him on the defense and saying, you better explain yourself to me. Why have you let this happen? Why have you done this? That's not the way uh, the, the Bible, the psalmist and others ask the question, why? More often, the question is, how long? how long is a lament that is infused with humble faith. To ask how long is to recognize that things are not as they should be and at the same time that God will eventually set the world to rights. But whether we're asking how long or whether we're asking why, I think the more important factor is whether we're complaining to God or whether we're complaining about God. You can ask any question you want, it seems like, just about. The Psalter gives us permission to ask just about any question you want, but it better be directed at God. You see the difference? The decisive difference is primarily not what question we ask, but to whom our questions are addressed. There is a world of difference between two almost identical questions. Think of this question. How could a good God let this happen? That's a very different question from the the other very similar question of Lord, I know You're good. How could You let this happen? Those are almost the exact same questions. Words, almost the exact same questions. They are worlds apart. And so the Psalms teach us to direct our accusations, to direct our complaints at God Himself and nowhere else. Because when we do that, prayer is an exercise of faith. If you are addressing your questions to God, you are exercising faith that God will hear us and that God will answer And this is exactly what we find in Psalm 13. David's complaints are infused with covenantal language. He calls God by His personal covenant name, Yahweh. If you're reading in your English translations of the Old Testament and you see the word LORD in all caps, that is their way of telling you that this is the personal covenant name of God. Yahweh. And we see this name explained back in Exodus chapter three when Moses meets the Lord at the burning bush. The Lord has seen the affliction of his people in Egypt and he shows up to announce that he's going to deliver them. And he, in that conversation with God out of the, out of the burning bush, the Lord identifies himself as, I am who I am. Yahweh, the name Yahweh means he is who He is. It's just the third person version of that statement. I am who I am. By saying this, God means that He is the God of the covenants. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God who keeps His promises. He is the God who is always with His people. He's the God who's always faithful. So whenever someone uses this covenant name for God in the Old Testament, they are they are evoking this sort of covenantal language. David says, how long, Yahweh? Will you forget me continually? Now, has God really forgotten? Does God have senior moments? Does God have amnesia where something just sort of slips His mind? No, of course not. This is covenantal language, right? Right? forgetting is the biblical term to describe god's apparent absence god's apparent inattention and on the on the other hand when god remembers it's not as as if all of a sudden it's something has popped back into his head when god remembers he acts upon his promises to save and to bless his people this is why it's so problematic when God's people are overcome by their enemies. The triumph of evil calls into question God's own faithfulness, God's own promises. And so that is what David is lamenting here. David is being afflicted by his enemies. He seems as if God has abandoned him, which is contrary to God's own Word, God's own promises. And as if that were not enough, being forgotten by god david also laments that god appears to have hidden his face we read we heard the uh, the high priestly benediction the ironic blessing from numbers chapter 6 it's filled with language of god looking upon his people the lord make his gaze to shine upon you he lift his countenance all of this facial language God's blessing, God's grace, God's peace is bestowed when He looks upon His people, when He judges them as belonging to Himself, and He fulfills His promises to them. And so that's why uh, David implores God not to hide His face. How long will you hide your face from Me? How long will you withhold your favor from Me? David has lots of problems here. He has problems that God has forgotten him. He has problems that his enemies are triumphing over him. But his biggest problem, the most painful part of all of this seems to be that God is hiding His face. We can withstand a lot when we know that God is with us. But when it seems like God is absent, when it seems like God's not paying any attention, everything, everything seems overwhelming. There's an interesting little uh, experiment uh, that I think may uh, illustrate a little bit of what this feels like. A, a little bit of what David is expressing in this psalm. You can find this on YouTube Later. Uh, uh, this is called the Still Face Experiment. It was developed by a, a child psychologist um, in Massachusetts. And what he does is he brings a parent and a child, a young child, like 9 to 12 months old, he brings them into a room. The child is put in a in a high chair, strapped into something safe. And then the parent sits there in front of the child with little toys or whatever and just plays with, with the child. It's it's you know, the mother and her father and child, parent and child, playing, having fun, you know, doing all their little games, and the child's just loving it, laughing, and all of this. And then, after several minutes of that, the parent looks away and turns back around and is completely stone faced. Doesn't respond at all, doesn't make any facial expressions, just looks, just stares blankly at the child. It takes about 10 seconds before the child really starts to get anxious. This is a nine, nine month old, 12 month old child. The child is like, huh, what's going on? You know, the child's like holding up the little toy. Like, what, what's happened, right? It starts with confusion. What's going on here? And then it moves into anxiety. Wait a minute. You know, the child just visibly starts to to, to get nervous and, and, and anxious and starts to like you know try to get the parents' attention. Come on, like what's going on? And then it moves into just all out meltdown, right? Anger, grief, crying, screaming. You know, uh, and and then after at that point, you know, the parent then snaps out of it and, and comforts the child, and, and everything's okay. What is what is it like to know that? your parent is looking right at you but paying no attention to you. Sometimes it feels like God is looking right at you and paying absolutely no attention to you. You know that God is sovereign, right? We're good Presbyterians. We know that God is sovereign. We know that God is sovereign over everything. That He knows everything and He has ordained everything and He's in complete control. But sometimes it feels as if God is like that parent who is looking right through you. Staring blankly at you totally unaware of anything that's happening in your life. It starts with confusion. It starts like, wait a minute, what's going on? This isn't right. And then it moves into anxiety. Whoa, 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 this is not what I signed up for. What's going on? Has God forgotten me? And then it moves into just all out anger, grief, and meltdown, doesn't it? We don't know what drove David uh, to write this psalm. We don't know the historical background of this Psalm, but I think it's pretty obvious throughout uh the Psalter that the most painful part of any trial is God's apparent absence. When God seems to be ignoring us. We can endure almost anything when we know that God is with us. But everything seems overwhelming. Everything everything seems too big uh, when it seems like God has abandoned us. As the children in that little experiment demonstrate, we don't need to be taught how to be anxious and fearful. We, we come pre-programmed with that, right? And that's part of the fall. Every human being has this basic, primal memory of betrayal and, and sin because of our first parents. We don't need any help learning how to gripe and complain when things go wrong. But we do need lots of help in learning how to suffer in a way that's faithful. Learning how to lament in faith. And biblical lamentation teaches us how to properly diagnose our problems to get to the root of the issue. What is really going on here? The Psalms get to the heart of the matter. David's lamentation recognizes that God is ultimately the one responsible for His troubles. That God is the only one who can really do anything about it. So take your complaints to God. It's very difficult to call on God to intervene. It's very difficult to know what to ask God to do until we've gone through this process of lamenting our sorrows before God. Lamentation is preparation for supplication. When we have poured out our heart to God, when we have identified what the problems really are, then we know how to ask God to act. And David's lamentation is what we find in verses 3 and 4. And it is filled with faith. He cries out to God in pain with humility and with boldness. But he doesn't doesn't just stop with lamentation. He doesn't just sort of vent his frustration and then wallow around in it. He moves on to ask God to act, to implore God to rectify the problems that he has already identified. What were God's What were the problems that David identified in the first two verses? He identified God's absence. He identified his own confusion. And he identified the triumph of his enemies. Well, here in his supplication of verses 3 and 4, he asked God to remedy all three of those problems. Look, answer me, Yahweh. That's the first problem. The second problem, brighten my eyes lest I sleep. In death, that's his own anxiety. That's his own confusion. And then the problem with his enemies. Lest my enemies say I have overcome him. Lest my adversaries rejoice because I am shaken. His lamentation has prepared him for supplication. He knows what to pray and how to pray because he has cried out to God in lament. He's saying to God like that little child strapped into the high chair with his parents just staring right through him stop ignoring me. you're my God, I'm your child And then he reminds God that his own reputation is on the line. look God, if you don't intervene, everyone is going to think you're weak. This is a classic move of all the great prophets, all the great psalmists right they all they all show God like God you've got a lot of skin in this game. If you let it, if you let it, uh, if you let us go, if you turn us over to our enemies, if you destroy us, boy, everyone else is going to think you're lousy. Everyone else is going to think you're weak, right? This is the this is the typical. This is Moses, right? Oh God, don't destroy the people of Israel now, because all these Canaanites will think think you're weak. Don't do it, right? These are your people, not my people. Your people, right? They know. We know, this is how we learn how to talk to God like that. So David reminds God that his reputation is on the line. In times uh, of trouble and affliction, we often find ourselves desperately trying to come up with a solution, right? This is what David alludes to back in verse 2. How long must I make plans in my soul with sorrow in my heart all the day? You know what it feels like to be in a crisis, in a desperate situation. Your mind starts racing. You start trying to come up with all these uh, magical plans to uh, to make every, to fix everything. When we're in the midst of a very difficult trial, when we are really up against the wall, we are willing to try anything that might restore some sense of control. We'll do anything to to feel like we have some control over the situation. We start flailing and and panicking when things go wrong. As If you've ever um, had any sort of lifeguard training, one of the things they teach you is that a drowning swimmer who panics could very well drown you when you are trying to rescue them. That's why... Lifeguards are trained, if someone is, is flailing, if somebody's being combative, they are actually trained to keep out of arm's reach and to actually go behind them and, and get them from behind so they don't get dragged under with, with the drowning victim they're trying to rescue. This is sometimes how we act. We sometimes act like that drowning swimmer panicking in the midst of life's trials, making a difficult situation even worse. Very often, we compound the pain of divinely ordained trials by responding in foolish desperation. By taking matters into our own hands. And so David's prayer addresses that exact problem. He prays that God would enlighten his eyes lest I sleep in death. This is a, a cry for God to sustain his life, but I think it's also a cry for God to give him wisdom. For God to shine His face, His wisdom upon David so that then His eyes will be illuminated so that He can say, see His way clear in the darkness. We need the light of God's face to brighten our eyes so that then we can, we can know how to how to respond in wisdom and faith. And so he prays for God to bring deliverance over his enemies. He prays for God to show up. He prays for God to take action. He prays for God's wisdom and His presence. But the psalm doesn't end there either. It doesn't end after his lament. It doesn't even end after his supplication. There is only one psalm in the whole Bible. One lament psalm in the whole Bible that doesn't end with some sort or doesn't contain some sort of glimmer of hope or thanksgiving. It's Psalm 88. It's the darkest psalm in the whole Psalter. And I think that, that simple fact is instructive for us as we learn to pray. Biblical lament strengthens our faith and fills us with hope. Psalms of, of lament don't sugarcoat the sorrows of life, but neither do they leave us wallowing in despair. They move us through lament. Not around it. Not trying to avoid it. Not trying to act like everything's okay. They move us straight through lament on in to hope. And so David closes with this declaration of faith. But as for me, in your covenantal love, in your loving kindness, your Hesed, I have trusted. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to Yahweh for he has dealt bountifully with me. Just as the opening lament was filled with covenantal language calling on God to act, the psalm closes with that same echoing that same covenantal language as David's source of confidence. God's Hesed, His loving kindness is His covenant love. His faithful love. He pleads for God to bring salvation, which is what God promises to His people. He promises vindication. He promises deliverance to His people. And then he, he confesses that God has dealt bountifully with him. God has rewarded Him according to His covenant promises. This is the paradox of faith in a fallen world. God's promises are the foundation of our faith. God's Word is an anchor for our souls. But, at the same time, God's promises are also, in a very real sense, the reason that we mourn. Think about this. If it were not for God's promises, we wouldn't have any reason to be upset about the pain and suffering and experience that we experience and that we see around us. We wouldn't know any different. If God's Word didn't tell us, we would have very little realization of how far we had fallen. And we wouldn't, we wouldn't know that God had promised to restore all things, to bring the world to rights, to set right what had been made wrong, to undo what has been done. God's promises fuel our lament. They are the source of our hope, but they are also, they make our anguish even more acute. Because we know that this is not the way things are supposed to be. Because we know that this is not the way things will always be. And so it creates this yearning. It creates this longing within us as we live in this tension between God's promise and His fulfillment. God has promised to bring about redemption and restoration and new creation. And we live in the tension in between. We see all that's wrong with the world because we know the height from which we've fallen and we know the glory that is yet to be revealed. And the Psalms teach us how to live faithfully in that tension. They show us how not to just survive, not how to just get by. They show us how to sing in the midst of that tension. Notice that David doesn't wait for God to resolve all of his problems before he starts singing. Like Paul and Silas who were imprisoned in the jail in Philippi and started singing in the middle of the night, David stops focusing on his own troubles. He he switches gears. He says, but as for me, And then he determines that he is going to trust God's promises. He is going to start singing, even when it doesn't seem like there's anything to sing about. Because he recognizes that singing is a weapon through which God works, singing is a tool that God uses to bring about the salvation for which we long. Singing is an important way in which God advances his kingdom. As any soldier knows, singing is training for warfare. And in Scripture, singing is a form of warfare. Nothing puts the enemy to flight like God's people singing. I used to think that the, the kings in, uh, of Israel would put the musicians out in front of the army because they wanted to have them all annihilated first. But it's not that, that's not why at all. No offense to our musicians, uh, or any musicians. Um, the reason the musicians are sent out ahead is not so that they'll be killed first, it's because that is the primary weapon. God's presence, the, the praise of God being, uh, being proclaimed in song is more powerful than almost any other weapon. Singing is the primary way that God's salvation is celebrated, that God's mighty acts are memorialized, that God's good promises are passed on to the next generation. And so singing is not only God's gift to us. Singing is a gift that we give to one another. We don't just uh, sing for the heck of it. We sing to encourage one another. We come together and we sing together to encourage one another, to strengthen one another. And so even if you can't sing well, there's a reason that Scripture commands you to sing. Every one of us. All of us. We are all called to sing. Even if your instrument's a little bit out of tune. Get in front of somebody who sings well and just let it loose. You won't know the difference. Alright? Singing is not a magical formula that makes trials just vaporize. Singing is not a, a, a magical cure for spiritual depression or anxiety. But very often singing is a comfort in times of distress. Singing is a means by which God strengthens us. God uses singing to pluck up our courage so that we can keep pressing on in faith. And so this song, which is itself a song, ends with singing. It's a song about singing. David's sighing has turned to singing. His prayer that began with despair has concluded in doxology. If we look at Psalm 13 by itself, we could get... The wrong idea about how quickly prayer and singing work. We might think, we might be tempted to think that in a matter of minutes, in six short verses, David is a new man and you can be too. This is sort of, we might be tempted to think that this is like those TV dramas in which all of the problems are neatly resolved in 45 minutes or less. Right? Is this some sort of, uh, Quick fix therapy. Try this psalm. Six verses and you're good, you're a good, you're, you know, you're good to go. If that seems a bit artificial or idealistic to you, if that seems to, um, downplay the enormity of your trials or the trials of the, of the church around the world, let me suggest to you to think of psalms like this as something of a spiritual time lapse recording time-lapse recording is when you take hours and days and months of video footage and you condense it all down into a matter of minutes and you see a process that takes forever. You see it happen immediately, right? And, and it's like, wow, it's shocking to see, see it unfold. That's what I think this psalm is like. Chances are good that most serious trials that we will face Most trials that God's people face won't be resolved by the end of a 52 word prayer. It can take days, it can take weeks, months, even years to journey from the how longs of verses 1 and 2 to the rejoicing and the singing of verses 5 and 6. But this is the promise of Psalm 13. Keep praying. Because sorrow will give way to rejoicing. Darkness will give way to dawn. God does hear, and He will eventually respond. He will not hide Himself forever. It probably won't happen in six verses. It might take the whole Psalter multiple times to get there. But it will come. It will happen and that's that's the beauty of this psalm this psalm shows us the pattern of the entire psalter the entire psalter moves from psalms of lament heavy at the beginning to psalms of praise and doxology at the end that's the trajectory of the psalter that's the trajectory of prayer that's actually the trajectory of the entire bible that's the that zoom out a little bit and think of think of this the whole scope of God's plan of redemption. This is the story of the world. The story of your life boiled down into six short verses. Psalm 13 moves us beyond our own problems and our own pain to consider the whole scope of redemption. Every tear will be wiped away. Every sorrow turned to joy. Every wrong will be made right. God is making all things new, including you and me and everything else. And when we have this perspective, when we let the Psalms form this perspective in us, we can confess uh, with the Apostle Paul, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory of that is to be revealed in us. Now that is worth singing about. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank You for the promises of Your Word. We thank You that You teach us how to suffer. You teach us how to wait. You teach us how to wrestle with You in prayer so that we might be fit for glory. Teach us to share and the sufferings of Christ Jesus that we might share in His glory. Make us fit for Your kingdom through the trials that You send our way. Help us to be faithful, humble, and diligent in prayer for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters around the world.
0: We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let us pray to the living God. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we give You praise and thanks for all Your goodness and tender mercies. We bless You for the love that created us and that sustains us day by day. We praise You for the gift of Your Son, our Savior, through whom You have made known Your will and Your grace. We thank You for the Holy Spirit, our Comforter, for the church, which is the body and bride of Christ, for the means of grace, for the lives of all faithful and godly people, and for the hope of the life to come. Help us to treasure in our hearts all that our Lord has done for us and enable us to show our thankfulness by lives that are given completely to your service. O Lord, save, defend, and grow your church purchased with the priceless blood of Jesus Christ. Give to her pastors and ministers endowed with your Holy Spirit and strengthen her through the Word and the sacraments. Give her ruling elders who shepherd the flock and deacons who show mercy to the needy. Make your church perfect in love and in all good works and establish her in the faith delivered to the saints. Fill her with mercy for the lost and compassion for the poor. Sanctify and unite your people in all the world that one holy Catholic and apostolic church may bear witness to you, the God and Father of all. O oh Lord, we humbly intercede before You on behalf of all sorts and conditions of people that You would be pleased to make known Your ways to them, Your salvation to all the nations. Send forth Your light and Your truth into all the earth. Raise up, we pray, faithful servants to labor in the Gospel at home and in distant lands. We especially pray today for Peru mission. We thank You for the team of doctors we, we were able to send there this summer. And Father, we pray that You would provide for this ministry and make it effective. We pray for the Church of Christ in Porto Alegre, Brazil. We pray for the work of the Slavic Reformation Society and for the joint Eastern European Project, for Ralph Smith and Mitaka Evangelical Church in Tokyo, Japan. And for all who seek to proclaim Your good news and spread Christ's reign to the end of the earth, we ask that their ministries would be effective and fruitful. And Father, we pray too that Your mercy would be shown to Christians suffering in places like Egypt and Turkey and throughout the world where the blood of Your people has been shed and where fellow saints are being persecuted for their loyalty to Christ. Lord, we ask that You would show mercy to our nation, these United States. Grant our land repentance that this nation might be truly discipled in righteousness, truth, and honor. Grant us leaders who fear You and who love Your Word. Undo wicked laws and unjust judgments. Give grace that we might turn from the idolatries that stain our culture and destroy our lives. Freely grant Your blessings to us, Your church, in this land, that as a people set apart by the Word, our holy lives might bear witness to Your Gospel. Be a shield of protection for us that our freedoms might be preserved and that we might lead quiet and peaceful lives in all godliness and honesty. Rebuild marriage and true family life in our culture. Help us to turn from selfish lusts, from grief, from violence, from dishonesty, from laziness and sloth, from pride, from willful stupidity. Forgive our foolish trust in military might and technology and any elected leaders, in the slaughter of the unborn in our land, make our laws and courts reflective of your justice, in the senseless violence and bloodshed in our cities, in the strife between different classes and races of people who ought to live together in peace. And through your people make provision for the poor and needy, for only you can do these things, great God. God of all comfort and protection, we bring before you all who are in any way afflicted, all people oppressed with poverty, sickness, unemployment, or any other trouble of body or mind. We ask that you would bless, comfort, and heal loved ones who are suffering bodily ailments, including those we name in our hearts before you now. Father, grant all these the consolations of which they have need and overrule their present sufferings to their eternal good. Have mercy upon those to whom death draws near. Bring consolation to those in sorrow or mourning and grant all of us a measure of your love taking us into your tender care. Father, we also pray for the several expectant mothers in our congregation that you would grant them and the children they carry health and faith. We thank you especially for the healthy birth this week of Nora, Charlotte, Guild, the Jimmy and Michelle. Father, we pray for those who desire to have children, that they would be fruitful. We pray for engaged couples, that You would prepare them for entering into the covenant of marriage. Father, we rejoice with thanksgiving in all those who have loved and served You in Your church on earth and who now rest from their labors. Keep us in fellowship with all Your people and bring us at length to the joy of Your everlasting kingdom. All these things and whatever else You see that we have need, grant us, O Father, for the sake of Jesus Christ, Your Son, who died and rose again and now lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, age after age. Hear us now, Father, as we are bold to pray that which our Lord Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors.